worship. It is selfless. It is who you are at your very core and what you were created to do. Since time began, God created man to worship, to sing, and to play in one accord. But worship is more than just music, more than just songs. It is about how you choose to honor God in your life, in moments when no one is looking, in moments of great triumph, and in moments of great despair. Worship is about surrender, about unity, about thanksgiving. It is about fully devoting your life, your will, and your ways to God. It is about obedience and truth. It is about reflecting our Creator, who, when He made you, knew every fiber of your being. You were created for purpose. You were created to give praise. You were created to honor our Creator. You were created for worship. This morning, as I said, we're starting a series made to worship. Today, we're going to be talking about how to behave in a worship service. There's a a preacher, his name is Stephen Mathewson. He, He wrote a story about an incident from his childhood I wanted to share with you to set this up today. He said, when I was a boy, I grew up in a war zone. I lived halfway between Chicago and St. Louis in the heart of baseball country. I remember many playground brawls erupting between Cardinals fans and Cubs fans. I remember coming home from grade school a few few times with bruised knees, skinned hands, and even a bloody nose because I defended my beloved Cardinals. To me, nothing, uh, or excuse me, to me, rooting for the Cubs was second only to blasphemy. One of the highlights of my life was the first time as a boy I got to go to St. Louis with my folks. We drove 160 miles because we had tickets to see the Cardinals play. It was an outstanding experience, and I've been hooked on baseball ever since. But something happened that day that puzzled me. About 10 minutes before the first pitch, two couples took seats right in front of us. Even as a boy whose eyes were on the baseball field, I couldn't help but notice that they were dressed like they were going to the opera. The ladies with long dresses and the men with sports coats. I thought that was a bit odd. During the game, as my brothers and I would would jump up and yell. I noticed the two ladies in front of us would turn around and give us looks meant to kill. Things got even worse when my brother spilled popcorn in one of the ladies' poofy hairdos. It was the 1970s. Every time we jumped up, we would get the same look. The experience was capped off during the seventh inning stretch. This was bat night, and, and all kids 12 and under received an Adirondack baseball bat with a Cardinals logo. One of my brothers decided to step into the aisle and take a practice swing and hit the gentleman number two on the head. The apology was not graciously received, and the two couples left during the, during the stretch just as the game was beginning to heat up. Now, with that story, who, aside from the bad incident, who behaved properly in that context? Were, were, were they as young boys, baseball fans out of line for doing what they were doing, for, for jumping up and cheering and shouting? Or were those two couples in front of them out of line? Who brought the right set of expectations to the baseball game? You know, when we come together and worship God, we, we face a similar kind of issue. That, and that is, how do you behave when you gather as God's people to worship? What attitudes, what expectations should we have? You know... Every Sunday, millions of people gather together for the, pers- for the purpose of worshiping God. They come to all kinds of churches, big churches, small churches, city churches, country churches. Some meet in multi-million dollar sanctuaries. Some meet in rented facilities. Some of them don't even have a facility at all. Some have, have loud worship. Some of them pre- prefer quiet, contemplative worship. Uh, some churches sing only traditional hymns and others sing only contemporary worship choruses. Some preachers wear robes. Thank God some don't. 
because I'm already warm enough as it is. I can't imagine being up here in a robe. I could go on and on and on listing all the different types of worship services that are taking place right now through all throughout this country and really around the world. In spite of the many differences, though, there is one common denominator. And that is that millions and millions of Christians have gathered today to worship Jesus. All of these millions of worshipers, in my, in my, and I like to simplify things, but they fall into two categories. Those who connect with God and those who simply go through the motions. With very few few exceptions, all those that are in category two really want to be in category one because otherwise, why else would they even be in church? However, for reasons that are beyond them, uh, there are obstacles in their way. Maybe it's doubt or confusion or fear or it's unconfessed sin. Whatever it is, whatever the reason, there are many people who go to church hoping to get something out of it, but but they don't. And instead, week after week after week, they go home feeling empty and bored. And amazingly, at the very same service, there are many people who go home from that very same service just completely exhilarated, knowing that they have been in the presence of God. You know, uh, Kevin Martin, he was uh, from St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Seattle. He told a story about two comments he heard one Sunday after service. And every, every preacher that I've ever known, every pastor of every church can relate with this story. But he said he, said he heard two comments as people were leaving. The first was from a, a, a new member of the church who enthusiastically said, this was one of the greatest worship experiences I have ever had in my life. Moments later, another a member walked through the door and approached him and snapped, the organ just absolutely ruined all of, of worship for me today. And he said it was hard to believe that both people had been in the same worship service. You know, the the most important element in any worship service isn't the music. It, It isn't whether the seating is comfortable. It isn't whether the volume is is too high or too low on the PA system. It isn't the songs that the worship leader chose that day. It isn't what what temperature the thermostat is set. It isn't any of those things. The most important element in any worship service is the heart of the person attending the service. If your heart is bent toward God, when you walk in the door, then it's going to be full of God when you leave. When you come with a heart that's, that's, that's turned toward Him, when you're seeking Him, when you have a heart that's wanting to be in His presence, really looking for Him, you will find Him. He said, you will, if you will seek me, you will find me. So how should we behave in a worship service? Well, you know what? Here's what I found a long time ago. All of our uh, behavior... It really goes, it starts with our attitudes. Any, any parents say amen on that? Amen. How many of you have ever looked at your child when they, when they said something and, and they, they said what? And they said it wasn't what you said, it was how you said it is the attitude behind it, wasn't it? So I want to start there because the, the before, we, it, it, before we ever even get here, the first thing we have to do, we have to check our attitude. What's the right attitude? attitude when we come to worship God and we have to have the right attitude about God you know worship begins with an attitude of of reverence or respect for God of uh, an awe of his holiness you know I'll just this is a side note just drives me nuts uh, and I, I would never I would never say anything to somebody who's who's not a Christian you know but it just absolutely just breaks my heart when I, when I hear somebody refer to God as the big guy or the the big man upstairs no, that's not who he is. It's not even, he, he's not some impersonal higher power. He is God, great, powerful, good, and worthy of our praise. He's not, he's not the big man upstairs. I'll get off my soapbox. But, but listen, when we talk about worshiping God, we have to understand this. There, there are two sides to God's nature. And, and, and this is maybe a little uh, breaking it down too simply, but, but, uh, but this is a one way to look at things and I think it'll help us. But, but one side, one side of God is, is what theologians referred to as the transcendence of God. And the transcendence of God, that's just a big, you know, $10 word. Actually, $10 doesn't buy much anymore. It's a $100 word because uh, that's, that's a little more reflective of our economy. But, but, but that's just a big word that means that God is beyond anything earthly. That he is absolutely 
uh, infinite, that he's beyond anything finite, anything earthly, anything about this, this creation. He's beyond that. He's, he's above that. He's beyond all of that. But the other side of God uh, uh, the, 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 is, is called the eminence of God. And, and that's just another big word that means that God is everywhere all the time. That's you could say it's the nearness of God, that he is here at this moment. So he's not only beyond all creation, yet at the same time, he is here with us in a very intimate way. They're, they're really two extremes, but both of them are absolutely true. And, and, you know, how many of you remember the old hymn that, that says, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own? We all love that song, an old song. That is talking about the imminence of God, his withness. His nearness, his closeness. And, and I, I, listen, you know, I, I try to pay attention to uh, modern worship songs, and there's some really great ones. And, and modern worship songs do often do a very, very good job of, of celebrating the nearness of God. You know, we sing about how close he is to us. We sing about his in, intimate love. We sing about how much he loves us. We, we sing about all these things. And, and we should, we should. I'm not saying that's wrong because David did it all the time. In Psalm chapter 63, listen to what David said. You, you want to listen to this. You, you talk about an intimacy that he talks about. You can see this nearness. He said, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I just realized when I read that verse, Paul must have been a southerner because he had through a potluck in there. He said, Lord, you're even better than the best potluck. Well, that's not exactly what he said, but that's my interpretation. Verse 6, I lie awake, listen to this, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I, will, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your strong right hand holds me securely. I mean, that's intimacy. I mean, you know, I mean, that's an intimacy, intimacy that goes beyond even most of our relationships. I don't, I don't look at Pastor Jason and say, I long to be in your presence. And he's grateful for that. You know, I don't look at him and say, as I was lying in bed last night, I could not sleep because I could not get my mind off of you. He's, a, he's getting really uncomfortable here. I am too. I am too, actually. I am too. So I'm going to move on from there. But, you know, we, we enjoy a closeness in our relationship with God that we should celebrate. And we, I think we do that pretty well most of the time in today's church. But I think sometimes we make the mistake of ignoring the other side of God's nature. And, and we've, we've, we fail to acknowledge His holiness. And we, we don't remember His majesty. We, we, we fail to acknowledge His power. His, we, we forget His otherness. That He's not like us. He's, not, he's my best friend, but He's not like any human best friend. You know, some theologians have described God with the phrase, Holy other, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely other, meaning, meaning that phrase just means that he is not one of us and that he is not like us at all, that he's, his ways are way above our ways, his thoughts are way above our thoughts, that he's not like another human being. He's beyond anything we can imagine. He's greater than we can comprehend. He's more magnificent than we could ever describe. He is, God, he is good beyond description. He is powerful beyond comprehension. He is holy beyond our ability to understand. He is completely independent of this world. And I want you to think about this. His involvement with humanity is purely by choice. It's not the result of any need or, or limitation on his part. Have you ever heard anybody ever say, well, God created man because he was lonely? No, that is just absolute hogwash. God was absolutely perfect and, and had perfect unity and perfect love and perfect relationship within himself and the Trinity. He did not need man. He chose to make man. He, and, he, and he chooses to come into our lives. He chooses to take part in humanity because that's who, that's who he is. He is wholly other than us. You know, Isaiah recognized this side of God when he saw the Lord. He was overcome with an awareness of God. Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 6. We're, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture, so, so get your Bible ready. 
Verse 1, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne. That's the majesty of God. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the greatness of God. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. That's the holiness of God. By the way, when you, when, particularly in, in Hebrew poetry, whenever they would say one word, when they would repeat it and repeat it a third time, it's like multiplication. They're, they're adding to it. They're not just saying that, Oh, he's holy, holy, holy. It's just every time they say it it's multiplying it that the what they said the time before so it's emphasizing the immense holiness of God and he says the whole earth is filled with his glory that's the glory of God Isaiah saw God and and who God is overwhelmed him in his frail humanity and you know as far as humanly possible we 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 must see him as he really is powerful holy pure and good. See, see, here's the thing. The nearness of God means much more when we begin to understand the otherness of God. That he doesn't have to be near us. He doesn't need to be near us. Yet he chooses to be near us. Which causes us to celebrate all the more in that moment because it's all about his glory. We're going to get into that a little bit more. We, listen, we worship God because he is worthy. Not because he does stuff for us. We worship God because he is worthy. Not because he does stuff for us. Listen, if if that's why we worship him, that's not really worship at all. At, At its best, that's giving thanks. At its best. But at its worst, it's self centered manipulation. Okay, God, if you'll do this, then I'll worship you. Our worship is based on the greatness of God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, the glory of God. In truth, even your salvation that we celebrate so rightly that allows us to have this intimacy with God, even that is not about you. The Bible says in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, for from him and through him and to him, are all things. This book, the the word of God from the beginning to the end will unpack for you the desire of God's heart is not simply your salvation. That's not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is glory for his name. That's why he saves you. That's what drives the universe. Everything exists, not so that you and I might be saved, but that God might be glorified in his infinite perfection. I'm going to read several verses. Psalm 106 says, We have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them, listen to this phrase, for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. So why are men saved? For the name of Christ, for the sake of the name of God, and that he might make his power known to the universe. Exodus 14, 4, and once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, this is God speaking, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camp there as they were told. And then in verse 14, excuse me, 18 of the same chapter. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am Lord. It's all done. When Egypt was defeated, when Israel was set free from slavery, it was done for the glory of God that all of the, all of the, the world, that Egypt and everyone who saw these events would know that He is truly God. Psalm 25, 11, For the sake of your name, God, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. He says, Don't, I'm not asking you to forgive, you, for, forgive me for my sake. He said, for the sake of your name. Psalm 23, 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For, for my sake? No, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons 
to himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. You and I are saved, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not about you and me. It's about God and God alone. All this is for God's name alone and God's glory alone. God who who is deep in riches. God who is deep in wisdom and knowledge. Not you and me. It is This is the message of the Bible, that God and God alone stands as supreme. There is no court you can complain to. There is no high court with which you can argue with him in. He he alone is God. He has created all things, and and all of that is for the glory and exaltation of his name. Listen, worship doesn't begin. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong. Don't get me wrong. I want you to understand, worship does not begin When we say, God, you're so good to me. Worship begins when we say, God, you're so good. It's who you are. Not just what you can do for me. It's who you are. We worship him because he is worthy of worship. Even even if we don't get the answer to the prayer that we want to get, even when we don't see the healing that we wanted so badly that we could could even taste it, it, but it doesn't happen, it, it, it means we worship. Even when the prodigal doesn't come home, when the thing that we wanted so badly that we ached inside doesn't come to pass, we worship him anyway because he is worthy. In spite of any circumstances, we say, above all else, I adore your name, regardless of what happens in my life, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of anything that happens, I adore your name, I choose to worship you because you are worthy, because you are the creator of the universe, I worship you. We, we join our voices with Job, and we say, Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. We we say you're worthy of my worship and I worship you no matter what. Worship begins with the right attitude about God. But you know what? You also have to have the right attitude about yourself. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus told Peter to put his net out into the deep water. Now, Peter had been fishing all night and he hadn't caught a thing. And here's this, this teacher, you know, a carpenter by trade, trying to tell Peter how to do his business. You know, he says, Peter, what, you know, I know you, I know you've been a fisherman all your life, and you've been fishing all night long, but throw your nut, net on the other side of the boat. I don't know about you, if I'd been Peter, I'd have been like, oh yeah, that'll work. Yeah, sure. I've been out here fishing all night long but I've been fishing on the wrong side of the boat. That's what you're trying to tell me. Jesus, trust me, I'm I'm the fisherman here. Let's, 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 but that's, you know, I don't think he was very enthusiastic, but, but what he said, he said, he said, if you say so, because you said so, I'll do it. It was more like, all right, if it'll keep, it'll make you happy, I'll do it. And it wasn't really enthusiastic, but what happened? Luke chapter 5, verse 6, Then they let down and caught such a large number of fish that the nets were about to break. And Peter, in that moment, realized, this is not just another man. He said, this is not just another man, because who else could tell me, after I fished all night long, to throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and then cause it to be such a, a, a catch that... that, that that they had never even seen anything like this before, that, that they had to get two boats in and their nets were about to break. There were so many fish there. And he, it says in chapter, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, He fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now, there's a lot I'm not going to, can't get into that as far as unpacking what he said there. But, but, but just suffice it to say that Peter realized in that moment, this is not just another teacher. This is not just a carpenter. This is not just a man. There's something more going on here. And and when he came into the presence of God and began to realize who he was, he he fell to his knees. Just like Isaiah. Isaiah, when he saw him, and we saw that. uh, We're going to read it again in a moment. Uh, We read it from Isaiah chapter 6 in a moment ago. but, But here's the thing. When we come into the presence of God... 
we become intensely aware of who we really are. We become intensely aware of our own sinfulness, of our own shortcomings. See, because here's the deal. We like to compare ourselves with each other, don't we? We like that. Most of the time we like it. Because usually I can find some area of my life that I feel better about than yours. And so I can say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Like the Pharisee in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. But, But see... The problem with that is that when we compare ourselves to each other, we never actually see ourselves correctly, ever. Because we'll either think too highly of ourselves because we think we're better than somebody else, or we begin to think of ourselves in a wrong way and think, oh, I could never be like so-and-so. I mean, I can't sing like Maribeth. I'll never be like Maribeth. God didn't call you to sing. Listen to what Isaiah happened to Isaiah when he found himself in the presence of God. He came to this realization and he saw God and he said, woe to me, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. What happened? What happened when Isaiah got into the presence of God, when he began to see the otherness of God, when he began to see the holiness of God, when he began to understand just how different he was, how awesome he is, how great he is, how big he is, how powerful he is. In that moment, Isaiah recognized he was not a good man. That's what he realized. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah had been a counselor to kings. He was a very well-educated man. And yet, in spite of all those things, when he saw God, when he came into the presence of God, he said, I am not a good man. He said, I am guilty of sin. I fall short of that glory. That's what Paul said in Romans. When you look at the glory of God, you begin, it begins to become very apparent that we fall short of the glory of God. And, and so Isaiah realized he was a sinner and his response is very instructive for us. Because he didn't just see it and say, man, I really feel bad about that and bury his head and, and weep and cry and then just leave. But he confessed his sinfulness. You know the Greek word for confess? The literal translation, it means to say the same thing. That's what it means, to say the same thing. So when we talk about confessing our sin to God, confession is agreeing with what God has already said about my sin. When we confess our sins, we are saying the same thing about ourselves that God says about us. See, the right attitude for worship begins with seeing God as he really is and seeing ourselves as we really are. And until we understand how broken we are without him, until we understand how helpless we are without him, then we'll never uh, rightly celebrate his intimacy with us. Until we understand how far short we fall, then we'll never understand how great his grace is. And that's what leads us into worship. He is glorious and powerful and holy. And without Him, we are nothing. Worship starts there. You know, the first thing to do is check your attitude. But then we come to church. We're going to have a worship service. Which, by the way, as we already said, and we're going to talk about it more in the coming weeks, worship is not about when we come together and and sing and hear a sermon and uh, worship is really about how we live our lives. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But, but let's say we, we come into a worship service. We come into the place like this today and we ask ourselves, then how should we behave once we arrive? Well, I want to look at Psalm 100 and we'll just briefly and then we're, we're, we'll, we'll be done this morning. But it helps us understand how to behave in worship. This is what it says. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. So how do you behave behave in a worship service? Number one. You make a joyful noise. 
Make a joyful noise. He said, shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. You, You know, when you read that, you start to get the picture that when God's people come together to worship God, there ought to be a little bit of enthusiasm and excitement involved. You know, some people have taught that we are supposed to be quiet for worship to show reverence. And, and listen, there are times when absolutely silence is the appropriate response to God's presence and what he's doing at the moment. I've been in many of those moments like that. Uh, and and we, at those times, we need to be quiet so that we can listen to what he's saying and we can hear what he's saying to us. And there are those times we need to be silent and reflect on what he's read, what we've read or what we've learned or what he's saying in a service. But you know what? There is a time and a place for that. But the normal experience of coming together as followers of Christ should be a celebration. It's a, that's why we're here. That's why we meet on Sunday. Did you know that? We started meeting on Sunday because what, what big event happened on a Sunday morning? Anybody remember? The resurrection of Jesus. Some of you are like, I don't know, I'm afraid to say something wrong. You know, it, I'll tell you, I'll say it again. Listen, anytime you're in church and there's a question asked, doesn't matter if it makes any sense at all. Guess Jesus, because you're probably right. So, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead. He, his resurrection happened on a Sunday. And, you know, all before that, the, the Sabbath was celebrated on a Saturday. Why, why do we meet together on a Sunday? It's because every time we come together, it's a celebration of the fact that we serve a living Savior. We celebrate His resurrection when we come together in this place. And it should be the normal experience to celebrate. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been to a football game? Let me see. How many of you have ever been to like a, like a big a college game, a big, big stadium? How many of you have anybody been to a professional game? Yeah, I've been, I've been to all three. But here's what I've known. I noticed this. I noticed that in all, at all three levels, high school, even, even peewee football, you know, I don't even know they call it that anymore, but... Uh, Seems, seems a little discriminatory to me, but I won't go there. But, uh, but, you know, at every level, at every level, I've noticed this. People at football games absolutely lose their minds. Can I get an amen? amen. Gina, you should be saying amen. You know, you, you go to an athletic event and I mean, people are excited. You get there, you're shouting. And, you know, every, every time your team scores a touchdown, you jump up and you shout. You're like, woo! You know, I don't, what do we say here? Uh, what is it? Woo pig suey. I, I, was, I want to make sure I got the right, because I want to say woo suey pig. But no, that's like, that's not right. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Jason said that uh, Arkansas fans have kind of forgotten to cheer because it hadn't been enough to cheer for for a while. Which, by the way, they got robbed yesterday, but I won't go there. But listen, you go to this game and you're just, you're just, you're just out of your mind. You're yelling and you're cheering and jumping up and down. You're, you're turning around and giving high fives to people you don't even know. I know, I've seen it. I went to, the, when, <clears throat> growing up in Missouri, you have to love me anyway. I'm, I'm a Missouri Tiger fan, which they beat LSU yesterday, by the way. So... I didn't plan on sharing any of that, but I'm going to let that sit there for a second. <laughs> Enjoy it for a moment. But anyway, <clears throat> you know, I grew up there. I'm a Missouri Tiger fan. So when they came in, I was living in South Carolina when they came into the SEC. I'm just here to tell you that before that, my life in South Carolina was very simple. And it got a lot more complicated when Missouri came, not only, not only into SEC, but into the same division as the South Carolina Gamecocks. But uh, they still loved me anyway. <clears throat> and I remember uh, I got to go, the first game that Missouri played in the South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina, they, uh, I got to go with some friends. They had the tickets, and I put on my Mizzou gear, and I'm walking in. They're all Gamecock fans, and I'm walking with them and having a good time, and everybody is yelling at me as I'm coming in, in a good-natured way. They weren't mean about it. But, you know, guess what? The tickets they had, they were right in the middle of all the Gamecock fans because the visitors, you know, their tickets are over in the one section over there. So I'm just this one lone Mizzou Tiger fan in the middle of the sea of, of Gamecock fans. And, and, and let's just say that first year, 
it just didn't go well for the Missouri Tigers. Uh, Gamecocks had they were really a, they had a very good uh, team that year, and they were scoring a lot. and And Missouri didn't score until the final the final uh, quarter, and they Gamecocks were up big. And every time there was a <clears throat> every time there was a score. All the, the fans, the Gamecock fans, would jump up and they'd be high-fiving everybody around them, you know, and like jumping them down. And, and finally the time came when Missouri finally scored. I jumped up. I was like, yeah! Was like, Nobody? <laughs> one, one fellow felt so bad. He got up, got up and gave me a high-five. I said, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. But we go crazy, don't we? I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, growing up in Kansas City. I'm a Chiefs fan. Last year, when the, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, when that running back broke through at the end of the game to seal the deal, uh, um, at that point in time, there weren't very, weren't very many people left over in the gym. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, Angela and her family was there. And her, her little daughter, the little blonde head, I can't think of her name, just left me. Eleanor. Yes, Eleanor. She was there. Thank you. You shall receive a prophet's reward. <laughs> and anyway, when that running back broke through, I'd been pretty quiet because I'd been nervous all that time. All of a sudden, I jumped up. Yeah! And I mean, I jumped up and down and was screaming, you know, and she was looking at me like, Pastor Dunn lost his mind, you know. <laughs> but we do that. We all know that. We've been there. And then we come to church on this next Sunday morning and slip into a coma. Am I telling the truth? I mean, which is, which, is greater, which is a greater thing to celebrate? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and set me free from my sins and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to spend eternity with him, that I've been adopted as a child of God, that I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that I have a hope and a future no matter what my circumstances are. Is that, is that b- worth celebrating or is, is that greater than, than, uh, than celebrating a that if my team scored six points, that's not even going to matter next week. Yeah. I, I'm not here just to, you know, to, to dog on everybody. I'm just saying, listen, I know silence is appropriate at times, but, but when we come together, we should have a heart and attitude that says, I'm coming together to celebrate with my, with my family today. I'm here today to celebrate Jesus. And, and I may feel awkward. I may be the first one to, to, to clap out loud. I may be the first one to shout amen, but I'm going to do it because I want to help my family work into the presence of God. And this psalm calls us into that enthusiasm and excitement and exuberance. Now, I want to say this as well. I want to say this. Enthusiasm on me is going to look a lot different than enthusiasm on Miss Nett. So I'm not saying we all have to act the same. Don't get me wrong there. But I'm saying that in however you display that enthusiasm in your life, that's how you need to enter the presence of God. You need to come to church with that sort of an expectation saying, I'm going to enter in. I'm going to choose to worship my God with enthusiasm today. Amen? So we're to make a joyful noise. But what kind of joyful noise are we to make? What should be the the content of that? I mean, it's not just noise for the sake of noise. I've been in those worship services, haven't you? Where they're just making noise to make noise. But, but we're told, first of all, our noise should be a noise of thanksgiving. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Now, that word thanksgiving means something different than the way we think of it. Because it means to give public acknowledgement. Let me explain it like this. Let's say you go to a church potluck. Oh, Lord, please let us have church potlucks again soon. Can I get an amen? amen. So now I got your attention. It's like he's talking about football and food. This is a good Sunday. But let's say I go to a church potluck and, and Donna Ward, who, by the way, she posts these pictures on Facebook. I avoid Facebook because just by watch, looking at the recipe she posts, gains, I gain five pounds just by looking at it. And so anyway, Donna Ward brings this, this peach pie. I love peach pie. Let's make it a peach cobbler. I like that even better. Make it an apple crisp. Anybody getting hungry? With vanilla ice cream? 
Now, we'll stick with the peach pie. Anyway, so let's say after the, after the potluck, you go up to Donna. And you say, Donna, thank you so much for that wonderful peach pie. You know what? In the sense of the word that's used here, you have not yet given proper thanks to Donna. Because you fulfill the meaning of this word when you speak up publicly in a group of people. And you stand up and you say, and you say I, just want, I just want to tell you what a wonderful peach pie Donna made for me the other day. I'm, I'm hoping that that's prophetic, by the way. It just melts in your mouth. When you publicly proclaim it and you give thanks to them publicly and you say, I want everybody to know what they have done. When you, when you do that for your spouse, when you say, I want you to know what my spouse did for me, that is the biblical idea of thanksgiving because you're making a public, public proclamation of the fact that, he, that, that your spouse, your husband, or your wife has done something and you're giving thanks to them. And listen, that's exactly how it works for, with God. Let's suppose that you've sent out dozens of resumes and you've gone through hours and hours of job interviews and then finally the day comes and you finally land the perfect job and as you look at all the circumstances of it, the way that you got connected and the the way you you, uh, found out about the job, the, the way the interview went, everything, you just look at it and you say, I know God's hand was on was in this. So in your private prayer, you go to him and you say, God, I want to thank you for for providing that job. Now that's important to do but you still have not really fulfilled this command. You haven't fulfilled it until you in the presence of other people stand up and you say, I want to tell you what God has done for me. I want to tell you what he's done for me. I finally got the job I needed and it was God who gave it to me. See, Thanksgiving is public acknowledgement of what God has done to you. So our noise... When we get together, our joyful noise is a noise of proclamation saying, this is what God has done for me. I'm so thankful. But he also goes on in the same verse and tells us our noise should be a voice of praise. He says, go into his courts with praise. Now, this is a word that means to speak positive words about the excellence of another. And it carries the idea that you are excited about somebody. How many of you remember when you first fell in love? Maybe not first. How many of you remember the, when you first fell in love with the person you're in love with right now? Let's go there. That's probably better. You know, you, you, when that happens, you just you can't stop talking about that person. You can't stop thinking about that person. All you want to do is be with them. All you want to do is talk with them. You remember that? You, you, you brag about all their good quality. It doesn't matter what the conversation is about. They're going to come up in the conversation. You know, somebody's giving you a recipe for biscuits and you go like, biscuits. Wendy'd be like, biscuits. You know, Lee really loves biscuits. <laughs> Can I get amen, Lee? <laughs> That's the idea of praise. When we come to worship, we, we, we should be boasting about our God. That's praise, to, to boast about him, to say, let me tell you what my God has done. Let me tell you who my God is. Let me tell you all about him, that we boast about him, that we, this, this God we serve. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of things we boast about in life that we shouldn't be boasting about, but let him who boasts, boast about the Lord. He is worth boasting about. And we need to worship him with enthusiasm. You know, we already mentioned that, but you know, you know, there are days when we come to church and we don't feel like being enthusiastic. You ever been there? I mean, I'm, I'll, I'm a pastor, I'll tell you, there are times when I'm not very enthusiastic about it. Because whatever, maybe I didn't get enough sleep or maybe just going through some things, whatever. And I'm not suggesting that we need to fake it, that we need to conjure up some sort of false enthusiasm. That would be completely wrong. That would be inauthentic. That would be wearing the mask that we're trying to avoid. But, but when we're in that position, how do we regain our enthusiasm for worshiping God? Well, it starts 
by remembering who he is and who we are. Just like we said earlier, verse 3 of Psalm 100, he said, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He is God. He is our creator. We belong to him. We are his people. So we remember who he is. But then we also remember this. We remember that God is good. He said in verse 5, For the Lord is good. Even when bad things are happening in my life, he's still a good God. Even when I don't understand my circumstances or why he hasn't changed my circumstances, he still is a good God. He can be trusted. He will never allow anything into my life that's going to destroy me. No matter what happens in my life, my good God will turn it around to bring good out of it for me. He said that in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We also need to remember to rekindle that enthusiasm. Remember his love. Remember his faithfulness. He said in verse 5, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. Not only does God have genuine love for us, but he is committed to our ultimate good. His love is not temporary. His love is not flighty. He stays with us no matter what. Thank God for that. I've done some really dumb things in my life. And I'm so glad that my wife didn't say amen. But, but you have too, haven't you? I've done some really horrible things in my life. Anybody here ever done anything evil? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are like, some of you are like way too quick. Like, yeah, that's me. It's this morning. Let me tell you about it. You know? <laughs> no, let's don't. Have... But even, even when I did that, he, he said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's what he said in Hebrews. No matter what I've done, his love has been faithful. He was always working on me, always, sometimes exposing it so that I have, you know, that I, so that I have to come back to him. Other times, allowing circumstances to be like a cattle prod to, to prod me back to him because I've been wandering. He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In 1930, a woman named Gladys Aylward, you're going to see her picture up there. Uh, She spent her life savings on a ticket to China to become a missionary. In 1938, the region where she was serving was invaded by Japanese forces. And she and a bunch of uh, 94 orphans, 94 children that she was taking care of, had to try to escape the region. And during her escape with these 94 children, she she faced one morning and got to the place where they're trying to get across the mountains with children. It's just a, they actually made a movie about it. I don't know how accurate the movie is. But uh, there's a place, they reached a place where there's just no apparent hope of safety. No way, she saw the no way that they were going to be able to make it. And in that moment, one of the little children, not so little, but a 13-year-old girl, tried to comfort her. And she, and she said to, to Gladys, this little 13-year-old girl said, don't forget what you told us about Moses in the wilderness. To which Gladys Aylward replied, yes, my dear, but I am not Moses. And the young girl looked at her and said, yes, but God is still God. When we remember that God is still God, then we worship Him gladly and with enthusiasm. The best way to foster enthusiastic worship worship is to reflect on the character of the God we serve. When I begin to understand who He is, it makes me want to worship Him all the more. How can we be silent? How can we withhold our praise? Really, how can we withhold anything when we understand who He is? When we truly recognize Him for who He is, we will gladly give Him anything that He desires. But here's the kicker. All He desires from us is us. 
Worship is enthusiastically giving ourselves, not just our songs, not just our words, but giving ourselves to our amazing God. I'm going to show a video and then we're going to actually go into a worship song. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen.